0: Luke 19, 37 to 44. As he was drawing near Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's heavy words at the end of that, though it, was, uh, it began with words of praise. So let's uh, enter into a time of worship that Mike leads us through as we prepare to hear God's word.
1: here. you
0: Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pike. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. I was going to let Mike play, like, play that off like he just had a really emotional you know, moment, but he went ahead and admitted that he just choked on his own saliva. So there you go. <laughs> happens to the best of us. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray together and uh, jump into Psalm 150. Father in heaven, thank you for these friends uh, that we get together together even during this time. Uh, this psalm is encouraging us to praise you, and I pray that we would walk away with a better understanding of that today, that our hearts would long to praise you, and that we would experience you as good, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, when I, uh, when I bring up the ocean's drummer, um, some of you immediately know what I'm talking about, and uh, others of you don't, and that's probably a good sign. It probably means you spend less time on, you know, social media, or you know, don't have a, a bunch of Christian friends, you're actually out there with people who don't know Jesus and stuff like that. But for all of you who do know, um, you know, I'm going there. I'm talking about the Oceans drummer. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about at all, there's a, there's a trendy worship song called Oceans. It's kind of coming from the Hillsong world. And there's a, vir- a video that's been circulating for years in which a drummer goes to town on this song. Um, the, he's working the double bass pedal, really the whole drum kit. And it's, uh, it's honestly pretty entertaining. So if you, you could just Google that, Ocean's Drummer, and there it'll be, and you'll see it. Um, and, and poor dude, this poor dude got really torn up on social media, of course, because that's what social media, and those of us who uh, tear people up on social media do, and all kinds of reasons, he got a bunch of attention. And even, he, he made it all the way to the Huffington Post. The Huffington Post, uh, gave him this headline: "Ridiculous drum solo makes church song epically awkward," and that's that's a solid title right there. There's a lot going on in that title, and uh, and then a video came out about this guy, and his name is Terrell, and you learn that he's kind of a, kind of a sweet dude um, who always felt unwanted until he came to this church, and they let him play the drums, and you get this sense that he was just. Enjoying himself and loves to play the drums and loves playing for God and especially in this church that loves him very much and, and he says something at the end about homie the clown and I'm not sure not sure what that was about but otherwise it's all uh, it's you, you kind of get endeared to the guy now I want to talk about this because you now what I'm not saying I want to clarify what I'm not saying here is I'm not saying because Mike is literally trembling in the back. I mean, maybe he, this coughing attack he had up front was, was because he knew this was coming. He, he's not ready for this, guys. We're not trying to say everybody join the band, no matter how you play any instruments. That's not where this is headed. But when I read uh, Psalm 150, I honestly feel like it's inviting us to a joyful expression and more than what we often do or call worship in general. Worship—that um, word that we tend to associate with singing Christian songs—really means to express the worth of God. Has a lot more to do with probably kneeling or uh, ascribing utter devotion. Really isn't primarily a musical idea. And in Psalm 150, we don't see that word at all. We see the word praise. Praise the Lord. And that's a Hebrew phrase which we normally say it's it's Hallelujah. I mean, if you've grown up in church circles, you've heard that said a lot. You've heard people say, they'll, they'll yell it out perhaps in the service, hallelujah. And that, that's, you know, it means in a way, um, praise the Lord. That's how a lot of people will define it. But there's more to it than that. There's a lot more to it than that. It's an encouragement aimed at a group. It's an imperative in the plural. And it's the idea of, of encouraging a whole group to a joyful expression or even to brag and express extreme devotion to God. And so hallelujah is this idea of this expression, and ja, at the end, hallelujah, is kind of a shortening of the name of the one true God. So when Psalm 150 opens with this hallelujah, this praise the Lord, for some reason for me, I don't get, it doesn't hit me hard enough because I'm used to the phrase, praise the Lord, and I'm used to the phrase, hallelujah, and it feels very churchy to me. But to be honest, it was a very culturally apt phrase. And so today, if someone were to come up with that phrase, they would probably be describing something like, imagine if you've been to a concert and the band is like there's a buildup and the band is not coming out yet and there's a lot of like hype, and somebody's been out on stage kind of encouraging you, like let's give it up for whoever, and the crowd is just like insanely, like they're waiting for this band to come out. It's probably something like that, like you are expressing this excitement, this devotion. Or when a, a brand these days encourages people to share their favorite moments with the brand, and they would have a person encourage, like, hey, share how much you love this, tell how much you, you love this. Probably somewhere behind that idea of hallelujah is something of that nature. Someone is encouraging all of us to be extremely like, excited and extremely devoted to God. It's in a way it's saying joyfully brag about God. And it lists off a number of ways to do that. Blasting trumpets, playing the lute, playing the harp, Strings and wind instruments, cymbals, loud, crashing cymbals, which is super Tyrell style, I should say. That is probably his favorite verse. And then vocally, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. It's important to understand, these are the ways they celebrated things. When they won a battle, when a king came back victorious, when they celebrated a birth or a wedding or told great stories about their heroes, These were the way they celebrated things. So today, if you went out on your front porch and began blasting a trumpet, that wouldn't really carry the significance to your neighbors that this carried to these people's neighbors. They would just think you're really noisy. But you should ask the question, what do I, what do my people do when we're honestly celebrating? How do I express my deepest admiration and then Another way of of getting at this is to think, what draws expression out of me? What gets me hyped up? Like, what actually draws expression out of me? What am I devoted to, and how do I show it? Now, I read to you at the beginning uh, from from Jesus' triumphal entry, and there's a reason for that. I think Jesus may have had Psalm 150 in mind as he responded to the Pharisees in this moment where he was triumphantly entering into Jerusalem, his disciples were crying out, screaming out, and and Jesus says, if they don't do this, the rocks will cry out. And I think that Jesus here is, is engaging in some hyperbole, that he was saying, this is an exaggeration. I think the phrase in Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, even that is a bit of an exaggeration. Can you imagine the idea of like mice doing this? or cattle. I mean, they have breath. And that's that's kind of an extreme idea that every living creature would praise the Lord. And here Jesus is taking it down to the least living of, of things, to the least breathing of things, to rocks. And it's like this ridiculous statement. Now, why did he do it? But I think he was trying to make a point. He was saying, right now, what I am doing is the pinnacle moment in history. This, of all moments when someone should be praised, it is right this second. And if the people don't do it, the very rocks of creation might cry out, not that they were going to like open up mouths, and, but he was saying of all times, of all times in history, this is the moment where people should get excited. My triumphal entry. Now you need to understand, Jesus wasn't the only one who had a triumphal entry. This was also a very common thing. Many believe that potentially the day before, Pontius Pilate, who would soon judge Jesus guilty, had had probably had a triumphal entry. This is what the, the rulers, the kings would do in these days. They would ride into the city, and they would ride on stallions, and they would have all their soldiers next to them. They'd be dressed in full regalia. And the the citizens would celebrate their heroes and they would cry out to them and say, save us, help us. And they would put all of their hope and their devotion in them. And the word they would say was, hosanna, save us, deliver us. And in this moment where Jesus came into the city, it felt very different, very strange. Pontius Pilate would have come in the front gates of the city. Jesus came in the back. Pontius Pilate would have ridden on his stallion. Jesus came in, on a baby donkey, and if you've ever been to the petting zoo, you know what a strange experience it would have been to see a grown man riding on a baby donkey. Very, very strange. But the people who had been following him, who had been hearing him teach, who had seen him do incredible, amazing things, began to cry out the way that they cried out for their kings and their rulers, and they were saying, Hosanna, save us, and they praised him and they were calling him their king. And Jesus says to the people who criticize that, and if you think about yourself, it's easy to look at the Pharisees and go, what a bunch of idiots. But I think seriously, if one of the pastors here in town decided to like drive up from South Tucson in a Toyota Camry, standing on top, just like, hey, and everybody was like yelling for him, I might be like, hey dude, tell your church people to shut up. This is weird. I mean, they were probably really confused. And Jesus says this incredible thing. He goes, if they, don't, if they don't cry out right now, if they don't say, save us right now, the stones are going to do it because something incredible is happening right now. And he made his way into the temple and he turned over the tables and he let children in to play, which was a very interesting thing to do. And not long later, he would be betrayed because he was really upsetting things. And not long later, he would be found guilty by Pontius Pilate, and not too long later, he would be hung on a cross. And on on his way to this very different sequence of of victorious events, the people, his disciples, began to praise him. And in a way, Jesus' triumphal entry, this strange moment, was a critique on his society. It was a critique because he was saying, you've turned my temple into a business. You've kicked out the worshipers. You don't allow little children in who actually know how to sing and play and worship and praise. You trust in your politicians more than you trust in God. You give all your praise to so many lesser gods, and he came in in a very strange critique, and his disciples worshiped him. Now this got me thinking about our situation. How do we view praise typically? I think we have a very reduced view. Here's, here's how I, and I don't mean to say this about every person in our church. I mean to say this about Christian culture of our day. I think we've begun to think like this and I think it's a problem. Here's how we think. When I get a moving worshipful experience, I feel better about God. So I need motivating worship experiences on a regular basis. That's not good. Here are some of the issues that when we talked about this this week, we came up with why this isn't, isn't good. Number one, it doesn't follow the Bible's model for how this, this works. That's the simple fact. I'll work that out in a second. Number, number two, feeling close to God doesn't mean you are. You, you can have a feeling that doesn't correspond to reality. One of my simple... Um, you know, experiences of this, is there was a, there was a baseball player named Jose Canseco. Before this, uh, before this sermon, I got online and I watched him hit some home runs, which it brought back some real emotions for me. He, this guy, man, he, just, he was ripped, and wham, upper deck, home runs, incredible stuff. I would watch him play baseball, and I would feel this passion, and I, I loved to watch him play, and I loved the Oakland A's, and I felt so connected until one day I got to go to see them play here in Tucson when they came to spring training. And I was at the back gate, and the players were going to come out, and I wanted autographs, and Jose Canseco came out and ignored everybody and just walked right by me like I was a little speck of dust. And I realized, I have a lot of feelings about this guy, but we don't have anything. We don't have a relationship at all. And the same can be very true of of how we feel about God. We can have, we can enter into feelings. I've seen, and many of you, I assume, have seen over the years people who showed a lot of feelings about God, but it didn't correspond to a deep reality because if God, you know, demanded something of them or they came across something in the Bible that really worried them or spooked them, they didn't continue to engage with God like you do in a relationship. They just kind of were like, "Uh, I'm out. That's not a relationship. The, the third reason this isn't good is it's too similar to what I would say is, uh, and I forget who brought this up, one of our amazing leaders who I forgot, but it's, it's too much like a dating app. And it's like this, I will worship God I feel compatible with first. And I think we have kind of an idol of compatibility. In, in dating, here's how it works. There's this idea that in, in reality, dating works this way. Love builds and compatibility comes with love as it's built over time. Compatibility isn't probably the top tier question to ask. Many compatible people have discovered they don't love each other later, and their similar interests don't really help. And many non-compatible people have worked and developed a love that creates compatibility. We're very prone to putting the cart before the horse, and this is especially true if, if you really look at the way that we pursue God. We're very much products of an individualistic society. It's the same. If we feel compatible with God, if we feel passion for God, then we will say, now I will love and worship him. Now I will follow this God. But if we're not feeling it, we decide we're going to be authentic. And being authentic is to do whatever we want to do and not act like we're worshiping God in any way. And that's the exact opposite of the order of things given to us in the scriptures, especially Psalm 150. Here's how I would describe the Bible's approach. I'll I'll work it out from Psalm 150. The Bible's approach is this. When I acknowledge God's greatness and worthiness as a life pattern, then it changes me. Who he is, a relationship with this God, changes me. And then I begin to express worth and goodness and greatness to him in increasing passion and with my community, those who are being shaped by him as well. This is much more in line with what Moses or the prophets experienced in the Old Testament or the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road or almost anybody who encountered Jesus. Just think about it, how many of them encountered Jesus or the presence of God, and were like i 'm really comfortable with this. I like this, this makes me feel great. no, they did not. they were typically terrified, they typically fell to their face they typically were were stunned like who is this with jesus they were they were stunned by his authority, they were compelled and repelled at the same time, who, how dare he say these things, but wow, the authority is compelling. It's a sense that you're in the presence of God, one who you're incompatible with in a sense, but then who you deeply need. You sense this draw, but you sense this struggle And for those who begin to worship this God, it's coming from a reverence, even a fear, as we talked about weeks ago. And then at times, it bursts forth into praise. But it moves from reverence to joy. You don't always get the good feelings before the reverence. So... I think we do this. I think we naturally drift toward doing this in our hearts. And I think this is a human problem. I don't think anybody is immune. We give God very little thought. This is just true. Because we're mostly inward focused. Our world revolves around us. This is how we operate. It's about the only way we know how to think. When we do think of him, we ask him typically to deal, and fix, deal with and fix our problems. We get extremely frustrated with God when a problem goes unsolved in our minds. And what we can do is we can get angry. We tend to get angry when we feel like we've done everything to be as devoted to God as possible. This is very much like the Pharisees, but we feel like God hasn't kept his deal with us. Or we can get extremely anxious, and the anxiety often comes from thinking, I've failed God, I'm not good enough for God, God doesn't want anything to do with me. And so we start to feel afraid, or maybe we start to think, perhaps God isn't as capable of taking care of what he said he'd take care of, of taking care of my heart or my circumstances. And we begin to be anxious that we've put our hope in someone who is not capable at all. I wanted to think about and go after this idea of praise under the light of our experiences this year in 2020. How much of our feelings about COVID-19, masks, race, fires on the mountain, the upcoming election, are shaped by having meditated disproportionately on the greatness, the power, the plan, and the purposes of God? And I don't ask this to criticize. This is a question I'm having to ask myself. Are we reacting to 2020's complexity by coming to God with frustration, asking for solutions, Only frustrated by the state of the world, afraid he isn't actually sovereign over it all, as many of us would say that we believe? Or are we coming to God primarily and often to praise him for his greatness, his goodness, his worthiness that stands true no matter what is happening around us? And then out of that relationship in which we've praised him and looked upon his goodness and who he is, then turning to face life's troubles in light of his power and his goodness and his might. I just wanna walk through Psalm 150 really, really quick and just show you the order and how it works and how it could address what we're dealing with here. Look at, look at the order. So the Psalm calls us to consider who he is and how far removed he is from us in his holiness then consider what he's done, and consider how great he is. And then, in light of that, to praise him. It says, praise the Lord. And like I said, this is, this is a call to a group, to God's people, to express your joy because of God. Praise him in his sanctuary. This word for sanctuary means in his otherness or his holiness, not just at church. It's a way bigger concept than that. Praise him in his set-apartness, in his holiness. Praise him in his mighty heavens, acknowledging that he is exalted and beyond us. He's greater than us, more powerful than us. Praise him for his mighty deeds, for his creation, for his directing of all things, for his redeeming of things. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And I think this is the cumulative understanding of all the things that have been said before his holiness, his mighty deeds. Praise him for these, and then in light of that, express it, enjoy it. Praise him with the sound of trumpets and videos and storytelling. Praise him with lute and harp and guitars and computers and drum machines. Praise him with tambourine and dance at every single one of your parties. Praise him with strings and pipe and orchestra and parade. Praise him with sounding cymbals and shouts of excitement. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals like Terrell. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Mission Church, be proud of your God and express that. But to do that, we have to do it in light of the one who we would be crazy not to praise for what he has done. Because the culmination of what Psalm 150 points to is the one who came in to Israel triumphant, and you think of his triumphal entry, and then you think of his cross, and then you think of his empty tomb. He triumphed far more than Pontius Pilate. He triumphed far more than any of our political heroes. He triumphed far more than any of our cultural icons. What we see in Jesus' triumphal entry was These people with mixed motives doing what we all should do every day before our God, crying out to him and saying, save us. And the worship of that day, that moment was utterly aimed at Jesus in all of his complexity. He was incompatible with their political hopes. Incompatible with the way they did church, but he was someone that they needed. He had authority. He spoke to us with God's spirit. He inspired their worship because he was greater than them. This is the man who calmed the raging sea. Even spiritually dark powers cowered before this man. He didn't fit in with any of them because he was God. Not only was he God, but he'd come down and become flesh and blood, meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. In Jesus, the mighty one, the holy one, became extremely accessible to us. He set his love upon you. And in Jesus, God suffered in order to redeem. And when you see Jesus for who he is, you can't just be reverent or penitent. A heart that really sees and experiences this will be filled with joy. And you will express it. Not constantly, you don't have to be fake, but honestly and consistently, do we see Jesus for who he is? Let's ask that as we come before him and worship him in song.
1: thank you that you are something that's worthy of being praised. Um, I pray that we just remember that that you are our center, that you are what we can depend on, you're what we can hope in, and you are where we can place our trust. You're the only thing that we can praise that can handle it. And God, just help us to remember that this week so that we can bring that out into uh, the ways we're interacting with the people around us, uh, with the people in our world and the way we're loving them. Uh, Thank you that we get to be secure in you and that we get to praise you for your glory. Amen.